Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we're joined now by The Guardian's Gary Young, who has a new book out today, which is called Another Day in the Death of America. He looks at all the gun deaths on a single day among children and teenagers and uses them to reflect on Americanism, gun violence and, and some other subjects. Welcome, Gary. Welcome to our podcast catacomb. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, yeah, our, our dingy basement. I thought it was really interesting that you said, you know, I mean, you talked about the, the kind of arbitrariness of the date that you ended up picking, but mm. the cases that you ended up with, what portrait of, of America did you kind of end up with from them? Well, if if that day was going to be representative, then you it were, there were 10 kids who were shot dead that day, children and teens. Seven were black, two were Latino, one was white. So... Um, that day would suggest a disproportionate number of black people, which is true, but it's not that disproportionate. You, um, what you wouldn't get are the cases, I think there's one a week on average of a toddler who shoots someone, even themselves, and dies, you know, mm. finds a gun in a mum's handbag or behind the sofa. You, you don't get that. And what you also don't get in this book is suicide. So on average, seven children and teens are shot dead every day. Of those, two on average will be a suicide, but suicides aren't reported. And so finding the suicide victims and their families is just much more difficult uh, to do in a timely manner. What you do get is a sense of um, who's likely to get shot, which is basically uh, people who aren't well off. If you're well off, chances are um, uh, you have uh, parents who will ferry you around. Um, you probably live in an area where there are kind of youth services. You're not out on the street so much. So there's all of that. And then you get this sense of just unluckiness, just the brazen, you know, just the, just the awful Tyler Dunn, who's 11, who's shot by a friend at a sleepover. Now, on the one hand, his, the, the friend's father leaves four guns loaded, hanging around the house. So there is negligence there, but, it's also true that that's probably happening all over the country somewhere. And on this day, Tyler's number comes up. And what you realize is somebody's number is going to come up. That is, if seven kids are getting shot every day, that it was, you know, in a sense, it was these kids' turn, if you like. 
Um, and you also get a sense that of the of why it can be so difficult to rally national sympathy and empathy around most of these victims of gun violence. Um, of the 10 kids, I would say six of them were up to something. Only one of them was up to anything particularly serious. He was in a gang. His godmother said that he had killed people. If I'd picked another day, I would be choosing the victims of Tashawn Anderson in Chicago. But the others were being kids. Mm. They were being kids. They were um, smoking weed. They were hanging out, uh, smuggling girls into their... They were all boys. Smuggling girls into the, their room. Um, they were um, doing nothing particularly crazy, but enough that if you were writing about them, you could discard their death as being something that they had come in, if that's what you wanted to do. Um, maybe um, they had had some trouble with the law. Maybe um, they lived in an area where there were lots of gangs and so they could be identified as being gang-related. That there is a way, and America does do this, of dismissing a lot of these deaths. So it ends up that you feel like you're not really talking about children at all. You feel mm. you're talking you're talking about monsters. You know. You mentioned that in your Guardian piece, didn't you, about the way that Tamir Rice was talked about, or the way that Trayvon Martin was talked about, and people sort of say, well, no, he didn't look like a kid. You know, he looked like these these pictures that are being used in the media are really, um, you know, really off off putting. I think um, the other thing I thought, which I think you wrote about before this, was this idea that what you've done with this book is taken kind of, you know, dog bites man, right? You've taken mm. a, a story that no longer gets reported because it's just, I mean, this is, and this is something that I think comes up again and again when you're trying to do social affairs reporting. It's trying to write about things like domestic violence, like, you know, violent fathers, which come up in the book. But people just kind of, it's not shocking. Yeah, there's a way in which we become inured to certain things and every society does it so in britain i think people are inured to public drunkenness it's just kind of you know it's part of doing business on a market town on a friday or saturday night people can be running around drunk mm. whereas there are other countries where that would just not be true and uh, my wife is american and quite often you know she'll say well why did that happen <laughs> you know before you mentioned it i didn't even think it was weird yeah. um and um yeah, I'd said in a um, speech I'd given, uh, um, the James Cameron speech, um, there is this uh, maxim of journalism that um, dogs bites man is not a story, man bites dog is a story, but sometimes you have to ask yourself, well, why do these dogs keep biting people? And who owns these dogs? And how? What should we do about all of these dog bites? And this is absolutely one of those things. Seven kids every day. And I, I lived in America for 12 years as a Guardian correspondent. And um, it comes up at the end of the news, you know. And it's usually 25, 30 seconds, you know. Uh, last night on uh, 57th and, uh, and Harper... Uh, a young man, so-and-so, was um, shot dead in a, in, in a gun violence. Police are still looking for the um, uh, assailant. Over to the weather. And it's gone. And America is sufficiently segregated that unless you live in those areas, then it might as well take place in a foreign country. One of the things I think is remarkable about the book is that when you're reading it, you kind of have to pause because it's obviously fairly intense and it makes you angry 
And obviously you've written in the past about feeling that one of the reasons why you wanted to come back was your children were getting to the age where police violence But what gives it its power is you don't write as if you are angry. And I sort of wondered, how did you manage that? Because obviously, I assume that you, then it, it, you did find it angering. I did find it enraging, but I also just found it incredibly sad. I mean, um, and sometimes, you know, peculiarly funny, when you hear the stories sometimes, I have a nine-year-old or a three-year-old, and, and you hear of, you know, Jaden playing, I think him and his friend played helicopters, and they had a umbrella and they would ju- he he invented this game you jump off a table and then you know do a mary poppins and you, you know it kind of makes you smile and that all of them most of them you go through their facebook pages or their twitter or you speak to their parents and you think yeah i kind of you know i know that kid or i you know i could know that kid and um and so i guess mostly what I was trying to do throughout was give a sense of who we know how they died so how did they live who are these kids and that anger can quite often just get in the way which is why at the end I talk about you know I said this kind of just makes me want to howl at the moon and some of the stuff it wants you know I want to shout at the kids like I shout at my kids like don't do that you know for some of these kids there are signs you know a couple of weeks before he dies, Justin, um, who's the last boy to die a day, changes his profile page to a kind of high-caliber bullet. And you're like, D- D- you know, D- please mm. just stop. Stop and think. But, of course, they do that not, you know, not in, in the knowledge, you know, not thinking that they're going to die in a couple of weeks. And um, uh, But mostly it makes you want to howl at the moon. And a bit that made me angry was actually when you drew back and then you would see the what passes for a gun debate play out on uh you know on the telly in the legislature and think you were going to do nothing about this are you? you were going to do nothing about this is going to be another day there's going to be more dead kids and you know you it, it feels so clear that they're failing these kids so you went out to the US, was it 12 years ago? Well, 2003. 2003, yeah, and then you came, came back, back in 2015. Year, yeah. How I mean, you went out under a Republican president and came mm. back under a Democrat. I mean, one of the things that I find most striking about this is, you know, I think Obama's extraordinary, um, amazing grace rendition was, was mm. a really beautiful moment. But the thing I get mostly is just from him is just an intense kind of, here I am again, and, and, and actually how much has the conversation moved on in that, in that time you were in America? See, I think it's moved on quite a bit in the last th- three and a half years. I think what happened, I went to see Obama speak in um, Florida, and it happened to be, I thought I was going to see a campaign speech, and it happened to be the morning after the Aurora shooting, when the guy goes into the cinema mm. in, the, uh, in Colorado and shoots him. And Obama arrived and he says, you know, now's not a day for politics and, you know, you know, it's all, you know, bow our heads. And he says what presidents had said up until that point. And that, and that enraged me. It was, it was in the run up to the election. And I thought, no, this is, this is about politics, actually. And this is, if this isn't the time for politics, when is it? Not to dance on anybody's grave or, but these people have died and something could have been done. When Newtown happens, it's just after the election. It's in between the election and the inauguration. 
and you can see that he'd been biting his lip and that he says, I've had enough. And and I think his tears were genuine. And he's like, we have to stop doing this to ourselves. And, and that was like him clutching the third rail. Mm. You know, Clinton said, Bill Clinton said, uh, he thinks that he lost in 1994, the you know, the big Newt Gingrich contract uh, uh, with America, that um, he lost that because of um, the crime bill, which had gun control legislation in it, and that the NRA just came for him. And he thinks that's why Al Gore lost, too, in 2000. Um, sorry, not why he lost in 94, but why Al Gore lost mm. in uh, 2000. And um, uh, and since then, Democrats have just said, we're just not touching this. Mm. There's nothing in it for us. And so for Obama to do that and then to keep doing it has meant that it's now on the agenda, which means it's no longer haram. We can talk about it. And Hillary has talked about it, and she stood with, you know, the malice of the deceased and so on. And so now it's an issue. And so even though they didn't get any legislation last time, that was after X years of silence. But now it's re-entered the public sphere as something that America has to talk about. And that's Obama's contribution. I think it's been extraordinary how it's become part of pop culture as well. I think if you look at some mm. of the stuff like Beyonce's Lemonade, which again has you know mothers holding up um, pictures, it, it, is, it is kind of just... It's sort of seeped into the the cultural conversation as well as the political one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that area of America's soft power that really goes against it. That kind of there's there are a range of ways in which people around the world think, "Oh, America, that's a place I would like to be." But the gun thing, I found a bit like the healthcare thing, is something that most people in the Western world just don't understand. Why would you want that? Why would you not fix that? And that the argument about the second amendment is just inadequate it's kind of it's a fundamentalist argument it's an appeal to a text in the same way that you know all fundamentalists mm-hmm. appeal to texts um and it's a pretty shaky appeal to a text at that but that um i mean i've made a conscious decision in the book not to go into that unless somebody raised it and they didn't raise it. So there was an interesting thing right at the end when I was kind of doing the final edit where I had these three paragraphs or four paragraphs about the Second Amendment. And I was thinking, I actually said to my um, uh, editor in America, is it possible to write a book about gun deaths in America and not have the Second Amendment in it? Or should I just find a place for it? And we kicked it around and thought it was, you know, worth a mention, but wherever I put it, it seemed kind of intrusive. And it seemed intrusive because while it's relevant in terms of explaining the obstacles, it's not relevant in terms of explaining the deaths. Mm. That's interesting. Um, so I kind of want to bring up what you said earlier, that I went straight from reading The Black Presidency to reading mm. your book. And one of the... It's been more difficult for Obama in some ways to talk about race without frightening white America. Mm. So in an odd way, Hillary's had this space to, in some ways, talk more about those issues. Um, but do you worry then... It almost, you know, my fear with her is that it's almost as if she's going to upset white America by being too in their faces, as it were. Do you think that is a, a legitimate fear? I doubt she can upset white America as much as Obama upset white America just by being. And also, interestingly, not just being black, 
but being the son of a lapsed Muslim mm. at a time when they were at war with predominantly Muslim countries, being the son of an immigrant at a time of, you know, xenophobic anxiety, being this kind of cosmopolitan citizen. And that. Whereas Hillary can claim middle of the nation, middle of the century, middle America, this, you know, um, um, but, and, and I think she has a tin ear sometimes for this stuff. Um, but it's also important to remember because of the way these things are racialized that, for example, most of the people who were shot dead by police are white. Uh, narrowly, most of the kids who were shot dead each day are white. I mean, it's not reflected in this book because, but you pick a different day and you get different kids. And so there is a section of white America, if one can change this, the nature of the conversation, and a, a different example would be poverty, where poverty has been, and food stamps, has been so racialized that you think it's some kind of affirmative action program for kind of feeding black people, whereas most of the people who use food stamps are white. Um, but once these things are racialized, then they can look like a special racial gift or a particular racial grievance. And so I think the challenge for Obama or Hillary is to place an issue like this in the sphere of kind of public safety, parenting, raising your kids, childhood, as opposed to things that happen to black people in poor places because it's kind of you know because it because it's not mm. and one one of the one of the things i try if there's a central desire in the book is to enable empathy with these kids all of whom could be dismissed as i said earlier for being something but actually for most people who know or have a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid in the house that you're entirely recognisable as young people. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, we, You also you previously wrote a book on identity, which I'm a, a really big fan of. And I, I think it's a really interesting... We start to, I mean, it comes actually back to the maybe America's racial politics again, is that we, we're used to talking about identity politics as something discreet from politics. And I wonder how you feel about now about that trend for identity in politics. What, what, where is it driving politics, that increased emphasis on identity? Um, I mean, in, in, in very, in, in a range of places, I guess. I mean, some of it is increasingly reactionary. Um, and that's always the risk with identity is that it turns into a kind of fundamentalism where it's the place where people finish. I'm black and therefore I'm white and therefore I'm female and therefore. And so that shuts the conversation down and it denies any opportunity for empathy or solidarity or coalition building or any of that. And, um, and it, kind of cuts us off from our common humanity which I think if we look at some of the conversations around um, Brexit um, uh, around immigration um, around kind of Trumpism if he deserves an ism you know it kind of speaks to a kind of identity politics that previously hadn't been considered as such um, uh, nationalism uh, kind of fundamentalist white racism um, 
on the other hand, there are other kinds of um, identity politics that, you know, I kind of find encouraging. I think that the way young women are reclaiming a kind of feminism is actually kind of quite inspiring. And um, uh, where would gay marriage be without mm. a form of identity politics? I mean, I'm, I'm 47, and in, that, in the time that I've been politically conscious, gay lifestyle or perception gay politics or the place of kind of gay politics in mm. kind of national point has been utterly transformed I, w- I was at a school in hackney looking at schools with my son and in the maths class not the sociology class or the religion there was this poster that just said some people are gay get over it and you just think that in a generation yeah no i thought that last night i was in soho and just a couple of guys walked past me holding hands and i thought you know i'm nearly 33 and that just in my youth was just not a thing that people did you know mm. just knew that that was no one would do that they would be too concerned about getting beaten up and I'm sure there are still places where that's very true but the spots where that isn't true are getting bigger and bigger I hope yeah and the scope for conversation of kind of what one would assume when I kind of um, when I'm talking to my son or even my daughter who's three I have to watch my language in, in ways that I, um, ways which would have been unthinkable when I was their age. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time to join us. One quick final question. You mm. interviewed Jeremy Corbyn. I did. Uh, where, where would you like to make a wild prediction for the Labour's next year? It had a pretty wild year, this last one. But wh- where do you see it going? Um, I think... I fear it will get worse before it gets better. I hope that there is a coming to the senses that this man isn't going anywhere and that parliamentary party's not going anywhere and they both represent something quite important. Mm. So best work it out. I mean, it's almost down to kind of marriage counselling at this stage, but that um, uh, clearly Corbyn did not have a plan for winning Mm. and clearly nobody else did either. And then there's been a year now and it seems likely that he will win again and therefore best everybody make plans for how we all make the most of that. Um, because whining about it is not really a viable solution and crowing about it is not really a viable solution. And um, I don't think it's beyond the wit of man or woman to work out some way in which they can work together on a limited set of things. That's what I hope happens. It's good. It's good to have some optimism on this podcast, which can often be a, a doom factory. But um, thank you so much for spending the time. And the book is Another Day in the Death of America. And thank you, Gary Young. Thanks for having me. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.